0: G'day folks and welcome I'm Chris Vader. and I'm TJ Steadman and you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants and we have indeed been tackling the questions about the biblical giants over four episodes recently. Prior to that we finally got an opportunity to talk about the Nephilim As we dive deep into Genesis 6 verse 4, we're not going to hear about them again till we get to the book of Numbers. Or
1: are
2: we? Or are we indeed? Firstly, uh, a quick apology to those of you who have been patiently waiting for new content over the last five weeks. Uh, I took my wife and kids across the other side of Australia for an extended break and during that time I did not do any of the usual work that goes into producing these podcasts for you. Uh, We're back on track now, and it's going to be all new material all the time from this point on, and how can you know that I'm serious about that? I'm serious because eggnog season is upon us once again, and you know I do my best work with an ice-cold carton of eggnog at my disposal at all times.
0: You certainly do, and I can't believe it's, uh, it's that time of year again already. How did that happen?
2: the season of eggnog availability is upon us once again limited time only subject to availability etc etc having said that tonight i made my own but speaking of seasonal things it was melbourne cup day today at least it was when we recorded this too late for you at home and the best thing about melbourne cup day is getting a free lunch at work while we watch some horses run around in a circle did you uh, chuck a few bucks in the sweep at work chris
0: I did not. I work for the government now, so none of those frivolities are uh, allowed or are promoted. I didn't even know it was Melbourne Cup until I overheard a conversation about it. So I think this is the first time mm-hmm. in years where I haven't uh, stopped for lunch and the bosses shouted us all out to the pub and we've gone home uh, a bit more tipsy than uh, should be allowed in the workplace. So uh, just another day for me serving the public of Western Australia.
2: Oh, I see. Yes, the, uh, the old government. Uh, you know, uh, Liz was in the same boat because she works for the church. So, yeah, strictly for verboten. But uh, for those who don't know, the Melbourne Cup is a horse race, and it's such a high-profile event that it's earned the nickname The Race That Stops the Nation. And people come from all over the world to watch this horse race. It's all over in two minutes, and absolutely ridiculous sums of money get wasted betting on the race. It's the only time I'll entertain a little gamble on the horses, and uh, on that race once a year, I might throw a few pennies at it, just in the spirit of participation. Didn't do me any good this year. Uh, I'm not really much of a sports fan. I I mean, I like my football, and by football, I mean Australian rules football, Uh, and I take great pleasure in relaxing on a summer's day, watching a game of cricket. I do actually understand cricket, because I know what a crumpet is, so it's not a problem for me, unlike Casey Jones, but uh, that's about all the sports talk you'll get on this podcast.
0: Praise the Lord for small mercies, but I hope it's not the last we'll hear of Ninja Turtles references.
2: There you go. Speaking of Ninja Turtles, I know someone who loves to talk about the Ninja Turtles. uh, And it was an absolute joy to be able to spend some time with Dr. Matthew Halstead for last week's episode. For those who came in late, you really should check it out. We had a great conversation about humanity in Genesis 1 through 6 and the way people in the Second Temple period thought about that especially the use of those ideas in the New Testament. Thanks again to Dr. Halstead for making the time for our listeners.
0: Yeah, that was a, a great episode, and it's always uh, interesting to listen in on your chats with some fellow esteemed individuals in this area.
2: Yeah, certainly was. Uh, and and speaking of making the time, I, I wanted Matt to set a time that was comfortable for him, so I said to him, you know, whenever you're free, we'll do it. Right? He's a busy man. It's hard to get hold of him, and, you know, I... Just wanted to honor him and, and, you know, appreciate his time. So, so yeah, he's like, yeah, sure, how about 10 o'clock? And, and I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. I, I don't know, full well, this is going to be in the middle of the night for me because, you know, surprise, surprise, the earth isn't flat and I'm on the other side of it. So it's 10 a.m. where he is, but the poor guy was feeling bad for me when I actually told him what time it was here. I to tell him it was, you know, it was okay. You know, it's just the reality of life in Australia and I actually do it a lot. Anyway, we had a really good chat, and don't forget, if you want to listen to more of Dr. Holstead's content, you can catch him on his own show, The Bible Unmuted.
0: Yeah, to quote uh, the late, great Australian journalist, Molly Meldrum, do yourself a favour and give it a listen.
2: Hey, hey. Well, it's time to finally move along in our study of Genesis 6. And last week's interview was a great stepping stone into where this is going from here on out. We've gotten used to hearing people talking about the first four verses of this chapter as a standalone narrative inserted into the context of the flood story. And it's true that those first four verses owe their existence to the Mesopotamian narratives that filled in the blanks for this Jewish audience in the 6th century BC. But that doesn't mean that those four verses are to be taken in isolation because After all, we are reading a carefully crafted work of literature.
0: Are you saying that the story in the Nephilim doesn't finish with verse 4?
2: Actually, I think we need to flip that perception of the Nephilim story on its head. It's not a story about divine rebellion and strange superhuman giants inserted into the story of humanity. I think we do ourselves a great disservice by spending so much time focused on those first four verses of Genesis 6, it definitely has the effect of isolating the constituent parts of this narrative to the point where we fail to see the connections and hold it all together. What we're supposed to be seeing is the story of humanity becoming the giants before being miraculously saved from destruction as God preserves a faithful remnant.
0: That actually makes a lot more sense. Okay, so what sort of connections are we talking about here? You know what? To keep it
2: fresh in the mind of our audience, I think we need to go over the passage again. I'm going to start from chapter 5, verse 32, and continue through chapter 6 to verse 8. Here it is from the ESV, but as is my wont, I am going to make a few tweaks to the wording to get the translation closer to the worldview of the audience. So from chapter 5, verse 32. When Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And when the man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of the man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of the man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of the name. The Lord saw that the wickedness of the man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made the man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out the man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. So, as I mentioned last week with Dr. Halstead, the connective tissue that ties all of this together can be seen when we look at the man in the primeval history. We have the man in Genesis 2, 3, and 4. At the end of Genesis 4, we're introduced to the genealogical Adam who carries us through chapter 5. And then once Noah becomes the focus of the narrative, we return to this archetypal view of the man representing all of humanity. And that isn't Noah. He's the exception Noah is not the man. But on a literary level, the way communication works, we're supposed to understand the man as all humanity in general. And this is what I was talking about when we covered those first four verses of Genesis six. And we saw that the man was intimately involved with the origin of the Nephilim. It was the daughters of the man who created these unholy alliances with the sons of God. That's the whole human race. Speaking of generalizations, we're going to have to become a lot more comfortable with the idea of generalization in the text, because that's the way that people communicate most naturally. And the author is not trying to give precise qualities or quantities in this text. You're going to find all kinds of examples of statements that don't make sense if you absolutely insist on hard literalism when it comes to these general statements using terms like all flesh or the whole land. So in this situation, we see the expression, the man, used in spite of the fact that Noah and his family are not included in that group. And we're going to see similar generalizations applied as we continue through the story in subsequent chapters. So it's important that we keep an eye out for that kind of thing and not get too hung up on counting every last thing. Let's not forget that this is just normal people talking the way normal people talk. And we all have a tendency to round off the figures a bit. That doesn't make it wrong or mistaken or factually incorrect or intentionally misleading or any of that kind of rubbish. That's not a liberal reading. It's like if I say that I went to Costco the other day and the place was packed. It was like every man and his dog was there. I don't mean that literally. Obviously, there are people, both men and women, who were not there at Costco that day. I'm also quite sure that nobody brought their pets. uh, But I digress. Let's come back to verse 5 and onwards. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of the man was great in the land, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The author is continuing this story about the whole population of the land, and given what we know about what was going on in those early verses of chapter 6, It should be clear to us that the man is no longer the man as created by God.
0: And that's a big statement. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, formed from the dust of the earth, chosen to act as the embodiment of God in the world, imbued with that status by the unique decree of God, filled with the spirit of God, which, as we were talking about recently, had become a point of contention. No animal's given that status. No bird receives that vocation. As far as embodied living beings are concerned, That is uniquely given to humans, and we're supposed to be living the way that God would have us live. So basically, humanity on the whole has become corrupt, notwithstanding what I just said about generalizations, and we saw that in this interbreeding that's occurring with the sons of God. Humans have failed to preserve the integrity of the form that God selected as his representation. I love the orthodox iconography of the creation of Adam because it depicts Christ forming Adam from the dust and making him, and he looks just like Christ. going to talk about this more and unpack it slowly as we go through Genesis 6. But basically what we're getting at is that God has chosen humanity as the means by which he wishes to express himself in the world. We are the vessel through which he chooses to act. To corrupt that form is to represent or embody something other than God. And that's what happens in the thoughts and the actions of the man in this story. But now we're going to make a shift to the divine perspective and talk about God. For a lot of people, God is distant and unconcerned with the affairs of men. That was certainly the case with the Canaanites and the lack of any relationship that they might have had with the high God El. Basically, the Canaanites saw El as a God who initiated cosmic order and then retreated into the background and just left the day-to-day running of things to his sons. And that concept of a distant God or one who perhaps only intervenes from time to time persists even in modern culture despite the affirmations of Scripture that God is deeply concerned with everything that goes on in the world and is somehow involved in all of it. And despite the fact that Nick Cave has publicly confessed that he does not believe in an interventionist God, but I know, darling, that you do. Sorry.
0: Was that Nick Cave as in And the Bad Seeds?
2: Yeah, just wanted to plant that memory in your head.
0: Thanks. I'm not sure that most Americans would be that familiar with Nick Cave, though. Well, he has put out a lot of work since
2: 1983. There's a chance I'm not the only one who would have got that reference.
0: That Kylie Minogue duet was pretty, uh, pretty popular, I've got to say.
2: True. Anyway, this is actually the second time in only five verses of Scripture so far in Chapter 6 where we're told about what is going on behind the veil in the unseen realm. The first was in Verse 3, and we're told here that God saw. It's an interesting verb choice. I think when it comes to terminology like this, we need to be careful not to get the wrong sense of the verb. We're not talking about looking for something or perhaps being surprised at suddenly noticing something like, wait, what? We shouldn't get the idea that God was just sitting around tapping his fingers and out of the corner of his eye. He just happened to notice what was going on down there on planet Earth. It's not like God is a farmer wondering why he hasn't heard any noise for a while before he discovers the hole in the fence. Crikey, the bloody dingoes got into the chucks again. God knows what's going on. And I think the text makes it fairly clear that God really does care deeply about the world in spite of the apparent distance that seems to have crept in since the humans left the garden in Genesis 3. When the text tells us that God saw, I think we're supposed to understand that he maintains an awareness of the situation. God's awareness is always connected to his plan. That's going to come later, but look at what God can see. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of the man was great in the land, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually.
0: And all the Calvinists said, Amen.
2: Well, they're going to have a hell of a time trying to figure out why God spared Noah or why all those patriarchs in Genesis 5 were considered to be righteous, but they didn't get on the ark. God can see the state of our hearts. God understands our minds. He can see the extent of the impact that man has on his world, and he understands the plans and intentions that people have because free will actually is a thing, and so is God's ability to know all things in spite of our own agency. I might just mention here that Use of the term heart is a concession to our modern Western conception of the inner self. It's not directly translated from the Hebrew. It proves that even in our modern Western culture, we still do things like using concrete terms to describe abstracts. As far as an ancient Israelite was concerned, the core of one's being was not some kind of separate thing to the body. That's important because it means that when a person is corrupted, it has a bearing on the entire person inside and out. There are physical implications to the inward pollution of the person. And nowhere is that exemplified more than in the Nephilim. As we read on, we're going to see how God feels about the terrible state that humanity has gotten itself into. This is a situation where the man, presented as the archetype for all humanity in this story, has become utterly corrupt and has indeed become the Nephilim. There is no distinction between the two. That's what interbreeding does. And that's why such drastic intervention was required in the form of the Great Flood. So I just want to be really clear about this right now. What I'm saying here is that. We had been talking about the human species as we traveled through the primeval history every time we saw the use of that phrase, the man. But now the man has lost his identity and humanity, having become intermingled with the sons of God to produce the Nephilim. Now the man is not human anymore. So when we read verse 5 and we're told about the wickedness of the man, we need to understand that the human species as created by God doesn't exist anymore.
0: Well, that's uh, a mind-blowing concept, I must say, and really quite profound.
2: Yeah, and as we continue to read this story, we're going to find that Noah was the only exception along with his household. People might quibble with that and say it only says that Noah was found to be righteous, not the rest of his family. But I'm going to point out that according to Jewish custom, a man was not considered righteous unless he led his whole family in righteousness. And we can see examples of that elsewhere in Scripture, uh, for example, in the book of Job, chapter 1. And uh, again, it comes back to that thing about generalizations. The bottom line here is that the man as a whole has utterly failed to keep himself set apart for divine purpose and is now a tool of lesser divine beings, representing them in form and function instead of the most high God. And that's important to keep in mind when we consider the motivation for the flood, because if we're going to take the traditional line that says it was because of sin that God sent the flood. Then we have to be able to somehow explain how it is that God seems resigned to the fact that mankind is sinful from his youth after the flood has ended. Clearly, the flood did not solve the sin problem. I mean, being honest, it seems like the very first thing that Noah does right after the flood story is sin, and his family aren't helping matters either.
0: That's a good point. I think a lot of people forget about that.
2: True. Nevertheless, the text mentions this evil and wickedness that appears to be a driving factor in the decision to bring about the great flood. And that's the function of those early verses of Genesis 6. Now we see the purpose of the flood. The flood is going to bring about a new creation in the land, reestablishing the distinction between humanity and the rest of God's created works. I want to come back to this point in a minute, but we've got to address this issue of the way that the text presents God and how God responds to the situation of the man in this text. Because we've got this really... Common stereotype of this angry God to deal with here. Verse 6 The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. That's from the NIV. Uh, You'll notice the use of the word regret in this passage. You might have other options in your translation. For example, the King James says, it repenteth me. Or you might have one that says God was sorry or grieved. I love the uh, Septuagint in verse 6 there. It says God thought it over. Hmm. Let
1: me
2: me think. Now, if you spend any time studying the doctrine of God and coming to terms with who he is, You might find some of this terminology a bit problematic. What sort of God creates mankind and then decides it was a bad idea and he needs to have a do-over? Does God feel bad about the fact that he created humanity and perhaps shouldn't have done it? Has God suddenly realized that it wasn't a good idea and he should have thought twice before doing it? You know what they say, measure twice, cut once. Has God done the wrong thing and then decided to reform himself and turn his life around and repent from being the creator of humanity? I mean, when you put it like that, it sounds kind of stupid, but isn't that the road we're forced to take? God messed up and now he has to fix it?
0: It does seem like none of those translations are going to get us out of trouble here, though.
2: Yeah, but I don't think we've exhausted all the interpretive options that are available to us because the Hebrew word there, which is nacham, can also be understood as to have compassion, which I think is far more fitting and in line with the character of God as we understand him. It's kind of like saying that you feel bad for somebody or you feel sorry that they're suffering. That's not the same as feeling like it's your fault that they suffer or being apologetic about it. The Calvinist has to say, well, it is God's fault because he causes everything that happens. So, yeah, God should feel responsible because he did it. And obviously that's a big problem because you have to have God as both the author of sin and presenting the antidote to evil. How is that the same God? And the straightforward solution here is to see the mercy and compassion of God at work, which is supported clearly by the original text. So this is God showing compassion on his creation and feeling bad that they suffer. It's not an admission of wrongdoing on the part of God. Honestly, isn't that so much better?
0: It is. And I think uh, a lot of people would have a much better view of God if they had this understanding of the flood story. God isn't mean and vindictive and nasty and punishing people for things that he made them do.
2: Right, and that makes the action of God so much more understandable. I know it was a long time ago that we talked about this, but back at the end of Genesis 4, we talked about the outcry from the people concerning the oppression that they were suffering. And we had this genealogy in chapter 5, just kind of slapped in there in the middle of the story, which served its own purposes. But we've got to keep the end of Genesis 4 in mind because it all ties together. We saw the tyranny of the kings, empowered by the technologies afforded them by the rebellious sons of God who took their daughters in exchange. We saw the violence that came about as a result of this new humanity. We heard the cry for help from the man Enosh and his generation. This cry has reached the ears of God, just like the cry from the blood of Abel. It's time to act before the human species is destroyed. So the flood comes as an act of mercy, in addition to the mercy extended in verse 3, with the limitation of human lifespan.
0: But I always wonder how this works with the animals in the story. If this was just the people doing the wrong thing, why did the animals have to get wiped out? God is all about justice, right? So surely the animals didn't deserve this.
2: That's a really good point. And to answer that question, we're going to need to take a big picture view all the way back to the beginning of creation. God created the land animals on the same day that he created the humans. Adam's first task was to sort through all the animals and look for a helper that would correspond to him in this he was supposed to learn that there was something different about humanity that set us apart from the animals we talked before on the show about how all humans begin with a desire for self-preservation and advantage but when it was pushed too far it became sin when we allow ourselves to be governed by the flesh instead of the word of god we become animalistic And after the transgression in Eden, the man was given animal skins, a reminder to do better. It feels unnatural to wear animal skins when you used to be naked. It's a reminder not to act in a way that doesn't suit your created nature and purpose. What we're seeing here is a failure on the part of the man to see himself as distinct from the beasts. And that's what happens when you abandon your God-given purpose. You end up seeing yourself as just a mammal wearing pants. It's evolution, baby. Speaking of, did you ever watch the movie Zootopia?
0: I did when it first came out and only because I like Jason Payton.
2: It's a really good one. It's an animated film. My kids and I really like to watch. The, the basic premise of the movie is that it's a world where all the animals are just like people. There are all kinds of animals and they just live in the city, working jobs, driving cars, wearing clothes, just getting about their day-to-day business like people do. My favourite part of the movie is where the idealistic little bunny rabbit who's trying to prove herself as a police officer unwittingly enters a nudist colony in pursuit of a suspect. When she goes in there and sees that the animals are not wearing any clothes, she's absolutely horrified. It scandalises her to see these animals behaving in a way unbefitting animals in that culture. And we'd feel the same way if we accidentally walked into a nudist colony. The difference is, of course, that in real life, animals are not supposed to be walking around wearing clothes in the first place. So seeing them naked shouldn't be a problem, but it really highlights how when you're immersed in a culture, you notice the difference when there are people who don't conform. You may, in fact, find that to be offensive. So the issue here is that when people act according to their created nature, in spite of the fact that the culture around them is different, that actually shouldn't pose a problem, but it is going to make those individuals in the minority a target for the surrounding culture. They're going to be at odds with the world around them. And what we see here in Genesis 6 is that it's the whole world that has become animalistic, having cast off the God-given functionality of the image of God and having abased themselves like animals. Just like in the movie, it is the people who are acting according to their God-given nature who are the ones doing the right thing, and it's everyone else in the world that's messed up. But it doesn't look like that from the perspective of the majority. Animals are not supposed to be wearing clothes, and human beings, getting back to Genesis, are not supposed to be succumbing to their base instincts and doing anything they can to grab for power and advantage over others. By interbreeding with the sons of God, the human beings have destroyed the major distinction that set them apart from the animals. They don't see themselves as distinct, and they basically have become mammals wearing pants. So there you go. Eddie Vedder wasn't the first.
0: But if it's just that the people don't see themselves as distinct from the animals, that still doesn't sound like a good reason for God to destroy the animals along with the people because the real animals haven't done anything wrong.
1: Yeah,
2: I think we underestimate the level of violence and savagery that existed in that time. We're going to see when we get to verse 12 that all flesh had corrupted their way on the land. Notwithstanding what I said earlier about generalisations, that doesn't really give us a lot of room for making exceptions. And I think the way we should look at this is to ask, what happens to animals when they're mistreated, especially when we're talking about domestic animals? They quickly stop being safe to be around. I'm not saying that the animals were guilty of some wrongdoing, but I think they were definitely suffering at the hand of man, and it's in the context of suffering that we see this decision made by God. What's about to happen might seem terrible to us, but it's an act of mercy. The sad reality of the world is that any living thing that suffers trauma is going to respond from a place of trauma, and that's not a healthy way to frame your life. You can't live as God intended if you can't function that way. As the saying goes, hurt people hurt people, and we all to some extent have a level of trauma and damage as a result of sin that's going to impact our relationships, not only with others, but with the created world around us. You only have to look at the way that animals get mistreated in our world to understand what's wrong with the world as depicted in this text. We train animals to hunt and kill. We kill them for entertainment. We kill them to satisfy our own greed. People do all kinds of sick things with animals. In some parts of the world, and and certainly in ancient times, we have evidence of this. People even committed sexual sin with animals. Even the Bible talks about this in the context of a prohibition of that kind of abuse in the Levitical law. And that kind of abuse has permanent effects. I'm not talking about breeding hybrid animals or you know, some kind of cryptid breeding program, this isn't the origin of centaurs or Sasquatch or something. I'm talking about the kind of trauma that's imposed on an animal that is getting abused by the cruelty of man. And I can say that because the context of this passage here in Genesis 6 is concerned primarily with violence. We've talked in the past about the possibility of cryptids and that kind of thing coming from some kind of interbreeding. Basically, if you're going to get that kind of thing from the text, then you need to be able to substantiate it, and it just isn't there. What you do have is violence and the greed of people in eating animals. I actually addressed this idea of crossbreeding and genetic manipulation between animals and other kinds of creatures like humans or divine beings in a previous episode and I really recommend that you go and listen to it. It's episode number 10 from season 2, it's called The Task of Eden. We killed a lot of people's favourite conspiracy theories that day, Chris.
0: We certainly did. So
2: coming back to the issue at hand, why destroy animals? Because As the text will make abundantly clear, all flesh had corrupted his way on the earth and that means that the animals themselves were no longer able to function as the animals they were created to be, in much the same way that humans also lost the ability to function as created. You know, when a tiger eats you, he's not being evil, he's just being a tiger. But when a human does it, he's not being human. Keeping in mind that all created beings on the earth have an inbuilt instinct towards self-preservation, that only gets you so far. Behaviour that exceeds that is considered unnatural. Where we have violence and killing without need, we're getting into the territory of sin rather than the nature of the flesh. So it's the pursuit of the fleshly nature beyond its natural limits that gets us into sin. And again, we talked about this back in season three and the nature of the temptation faced by Adam and Eve. I'm not going to go back into all that again, but it should suffice to look at this text and realize that the distinction between man and beast has become eroded away almost to nothing. And what we need to get creation back on track is a drastic measure to put an end to the violence the depravity, the greed, everything else that's going on, not to prevent it from having again, but to give men a chance to do right and to maintain order as he's supposed to under the authority and according to the instruction of God. The flood's coming, not as a punishment on the unrighteous, but as an act of compassion, grace and mercy toward the faithful. It's interesting that elsewhere in scripture we find people compared to animals in situations where their greed has got them in trouble. I'm thinking in particular of Jude 10 and 11 here, which says, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. So you see how Jude makes use of the idea of animalistic tendencies to describe the sin of greed, which to his mind motivates other sins like murder and also false teaching. This should really make the penny drop if you've been following the story of Genesis 4 through 6 in parallel with First Enoch. Jude says that it's the breakdown of distinction between man and beast that leads to these kinds of sins, and isn't that what we hear from the secular platform these days? You're just a clump of cells. You're just an animal. You're just a mammal. Who cares? Do what you want. This is where it ends up. Now one thing that you may have noticed about the declaration that God makes about wiping everything off the land is that there are no sea creatures mentioned. It seems pretty obvious at first because it's a flood. Creatures that live in the water theoretically are going to be just fine, but there is a deeper significance to this. If you recall our conversation back in season one of the podcast concerning the symbolic imagery at play in the creation of the creatures that live in the deep, we talked about the inhabitants of the deep as spiritual beings that were chaotic by nature and existed in a realm uninhabitable by mortals a realm characterised by death and the spirits of the dead. And here the implication is that none of the inhabitants of the sea are actually going to be destroyed. That's just something to think about as we continue in the lead up to the flood.
0: You sound suspiciously like you're not going to elaborate on that thought right now.
2: Down straight. You don't think I'm letting that one out of the bag just yet, do you? We've got a lot of ground to cover before we get there. Uh, So now we come to the last part of our reading for today, which is verse 8, and it certainly comes as a relief after all the violence and evil that we've been introduced to so far. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, or you might have grace in your translation. And it's fairly obvious that this is a good sign for Noah and for humanity by extension, but I think what we should really be picking up here is a theme that began in Genesis 2, and that is going to continue with Abraham and carry on through Genesis and into the story of Israel. The idea of grace is one of unmerited favour. Noah as an individual is not particularly special. I know we looked at all those stories from the Second Temple period that portrayed Noah as some really amazing person with this glorious, radiant nature. Uh, that was the end of Season 5 for those who came in late, but we won't have any trouble reconciling the two if we understand what's going on.
0: But how does that work? On the one hand, you're saying there's nothing special about Noah, and then there's these other stories that hype him up like he's some sort of superhero. So how can those two ideas possibly work together?
2: Well, as you know, one thing about Noah that makes him special in this story, and the whole reason we have the genealogy in Genesis 5, is that Noah is going to be seen as the new Adam, which means that many of the things we said about Adam could be said about Noah. Adam too was unremarkable chosen from the dust which represents an immeasurable population of indistinct individuals made special by that election of god you see how both of these figures get chosen from a huge population and then they become the first or the preeminent among all those who come after them likewise noah is chosen for this task not on the basis of anything in particular other than the fact that he had not become defiled with the nephilim Later, we're going to hear that God calls Noah righteous, but that is something he is called on the basis of his obedience. He was elected by God prior to that obedience. And just like Adam, Noah was given the responsibility to bear the image of God into the new world that would emerge from the cosmic waters. So that glorious, radiant appearance of Noah as described in Second Temple Period literature is, as we discussed before, a way of describing that representation of the divine. You also find in related texts from a similar time in Jewish history that people thought of Adam as being radiant as well. Again, it's not that these people really walked around glowing or they didn't have material bodies or something. It's a way of describing their function as representatives of God. Just like God has this radiance and glory, those who represent him well are described in a similar way. Whether formed from dust or simply the recipient of divine grace, the man who represents God does not do so on the basis of his own merit. And that's probably the key thought here. This is God showing his favour, and the focus should be squarely on God, not the person elected to do his bidding.
0: That actually works, works really well, and I can see how those two ideas of humble origins and divinely bestowed glory actually work together quite well.
2: Then there's something else going on here too, which is going to get clearer as we go along. But we're seeing the beginning of a framework of Jewish eschatology that is going to establish the biblical paradigm for faith and conduct as we go along. But we're going to talk more about that as it develops.
0: Well, you're just full of teasers today, aren't you?
2: Keep them on their toes, Chris. That's what I reckon. And having said that, I think it's about time we move on for today.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let's do some Q&A.
1: I want to hear your giant questions you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers
0: to your giant questions. Evan asked on the answers to giant questions Facebook page? I have a question I cannot get answered. Doesn't deal with giants though, so I'm sorry. I grew up in a pre-Mill rapture home where the judgment seat of Christ and great white throne judgment were taught as two separate judgments. The judgment seat of Christ was for believers where rewards are given and great white throne judgment for non-believers where they are sent to the lake of fire. Through reading the text and studies, I've come to question this interpretation. The problem is I can't find much info on the judgment seat of Christ outside of pre-Mill views which leads to more questions of why others aren't discussing this. My question is, what, if anything, is the difference between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment? If there is a difference, who goes to which and what occurs at them? Is there historical evidence or text that describes whatever your response will be? Thanks so much in advance. Hmm.
2: All right, Evan. Well, thank you very much for sending in your question. And don't feel bad that it isn't about giants because we just spent four whole episodes doing giant questions. So it's kind of nice to be thinking about something else. Although I get the feeling that we're going to hit giants here too. Uh, Also, I want to apologize because you sent this question in a really long time ago. And I just wanted to sit on it for a while till I was in a good space to be able to give it a thoughtful answer. So I'm sorry I had to wait so long. At least you'll hear what I have to say about the judgment before it happens. Hopefully. I think the best thing to do would be to start with some scripture to give us a bit of a background. I'll just pitch in here and there with some thoughts as we go along. So this is from Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11 uh, through to 15. Then I saw a great white throne. Okay, so there's that terminology of the great white throne judgment that Evan was asking about. uh, And him who was seated on it. Obviously, that's God. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So this is the inhabitants of heaven and earth in fear of the judgment. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Okay, so pay attention here. We've just been told that there are books, plural, being opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. This is obviously a separate book, and it's different to the books that were opened previously. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. So then we have another reference to the books, plural, and in the context of the judgment of people's works. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Uh, I don't see anything here that indicates that only the wicked or unrighteous or unfaithful are being judged here. In fact, I think it's the opposite based on John's typical use of the dead as uh, shorthand for the dead in Christ. Uh, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, and here we have that singular book that was mentioned earlier, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, uh, I've written about this briefly in my book, and although I did preface the eschatological section of my book with a bit of a disclaimer that I tend to hold my eschatology in an open hand, I think there are some things I can say about this. When I read that passage, I don't see any evidence of two separate judgments in the sense of separate events. What I do see is judgment according to two separate criteria. On the one hand, people are judged by their works, and the reference there is to the books, uh, plural, which would indicate that the books are most likely indicative of records of people's life and conduct while on earth. As I mentioned, this looks to me like the reward of the righteous, rather than punishment of the wicked. But the other judgment that occurs at the same time, while the Lord remains seated on the same throne, is the judgment according to the contents of the other book, which is referred to as the book of life. We haven't skipped to some other time or place here. This is literally the same judgment, just with respect to a different book. This time, the issue is not one of conduct or works, which have already been assessed according to the other books. Now, it's all about qualification, or you could perhaps think of it as citizenship. The question here is, are you eligible for citizenship in the new creation? And that particular passage doesn't have much to say about the criteria for eligibility or otherwise. But before we get into eligibility, let's have a look at what the reward of this book looks like. I'll give you a brief quote from my book here. This is from chapter 39. According to Daniel 12, the language used to describe the glory awaiting those found in the book is the same as that used to describe the seed of Abraham. That means it is the destiny of God's children, children of the promise, to be raised to everlasting glory. Whether Jew or Gentile, again, as we've seen, faithful allegiance is the qualifier to find oneself recorded as a child of God in this book. The book of life is basically the list of who is allowed to enter the New Jerusalem. In ancient times, a register was kept at the city gates and only those whose names could be found in that book would be recognised as citizens and allowed to enter. This is what Paul alluded to when he said our citizenship is in heaven. If you're not on the list, not only are you not getting in there, but you're also admitted on a one-way trip to the Lake of Fire. Okay, so that raises the question, who's got their name in that book and how is it that the Bible talks about people not having their name in that book? Those names found in the book of life are the people who come in faith to Yahweh and are allegiant to him. We might also include in this group people of conscience who never knew about Christ. We saw that in Daniel 12, and it refers back to the covenant with Abraham. Those names blotted out are the people who rejected Christ and did not confess him as Lord and Savior, in particular, the unrepentant, as seen in Revelation 3. So that's not little kids and unborn babies and people who lived in unreached people groups. We're talking about intentional rejection here. Those names removed are the people who did not teach the whole counsel of scripture in order to mislead others into sin and apostasy. Uh, That's uh, Revelation 22. Those names never written in the book belong to those who were never created by God. They can only be the Nephilim. Now, admittedly, I don't have chapter and verse on that one, but it comes from logical premises. All the people God creates are in the book of life automatically. Some exclude themselves, as we've seen. But people who never had their names in there must be those not created by God. Where do we find those? Genesis 6. Those are the offspring of the sons of God. Hence, Revelation 21 refers to the abominable that are cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21 verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers And idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Uh, Verse 27, and there shall in no wise enter into it, that is the new Jerusalem, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. A little bit of King Jimmy there. Uh, You might be wondering what I meant before when I talked about the way that John uses that phrase, the dead, to refer to the dead in Christ rather than the dead in general. So here I'm going to give you every single occurrence of that phrase, the dead, in the book of Revelation. You could actually take this further and go through all of John's writings to get the same result. But just to save time, I'm going to use those from Revelation because that's the book we're reading. Uh, Revelation 11 verse 18. And the nations were angry and thy wrath is come and the time of the dead that they should be judged. And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets and to the saints. And them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. So again, you've, you've got this idea of reward coming first, and then you have the destruction of the wicked there. Revelation 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith so the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. So again, works in connection with the dead in the Lord. Uh, Revelation 20 verse 5, For the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So this is the the dead uh, who get resurrected, not the unrighteous. Okay, so those are the passages outside of the one we're actually trying to interpret in chapter 20. And I think it helps to shed light on the interpretation of that passage. So what we see is a situation where the righteous are judged according to the books by their works and rewarded accordingly. And those whose names were not found written in the book of life are judged on the basis of that book, not on their works, and are excluded from the New Jerusalem. And uh, I think you'll agree that makes sense. I mean, why judge somebody on their works if they're going to go to the Lake of Fire anyway? Um, Because their works mean nothing. But again, I think this is all one judgment, not a series of judgments or subsequent events. I think that's consistent with the text and consistent with the worldview of Jews in the Second Temple period. So Hopefully that's a suitable answer. Uh, I know I didn't get into patristics and all that kind of thing, but that's because I'm primarily concerned with the biblical text. I'm not against the tradition of the church, but I have seen how tradition can go all sorts of places based on misinterpretation. So I prefer to stick with the source material. And if you just read it for what it says and build your conclusions on that, instead of approaching the text with a certain theology in mind and then being forced to manipulate the interpretation to prove it, uh, you come away with a much more consistent result. Anyway, that's all for now. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with another episode next week where we officially begin our coverage of the flood story. So
0: stick around for that. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait. Uh, Thanks again to Evan for sending in that question. And don't forget, listeners, you too, can send in your questions through our website, giantanswers.com. See you next time. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show this podcast comes out every week but you want to make sure you never miss an episode so if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast.
1: Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Brave Forsaken, GreatForsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by TJ Steadman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreesc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog, and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.
0: I understand. That is a wise decision. Can't can't wait all day for the uh, eggnog industry to fix those regulations.
2: No, that's right. And, uh, you know, if uh, Muhammad will not go to the mountain, then the eggnog must be made. By me. Mm. I actually addressed this idea of crossbreeding at,
0: yeah, a little bit. I am doing uh, November, not that you can really tell. Oh, yeah, a yeah, uh, bit uh, of a mow there. A bit of a whisper, not, nothing to your uh, extent. Um, but yeah.
2: I, I just forgot. left it here, that was not any effort.
0: No. no I it was, am it's just nowhere. not cultivated. No.
2: Um, yes, yeah, so I, I am participating in. November, where I just say no to stuff. Um, No, can
0: I have no? Just even when Liz asks you to, you know, take the bin out or do the dishes, especially then. Okay,
2: for a lot of people, God is distant and unconcerned with the the, fear.
0: But uh, yeah, I've done it twice in the past years ago, and both times people have asked me, like mid-November, are you doing it this year? Okay. Clearly it's. Uh, I'm not too enough. There's nothing I can do, you know. Just got to. Uh, can't push out the follicles. You sound suspiciously like you're not going to elaborate on that. You sound suspiciously. <laughs> suspiciously. suspiciously. I don't know. Do they, don't
2: they have like uh, products for stimulating? I'm sure. Like. Uh,
0: yeah, for, at least for the hair, but I don't know if hmm. the mo. Oh, I'm pretty
2: sure you can get stuff. I mean, you can't tell me all these guys just started walking around looking like Ned Kelly overnight, you know, without no. some kind of chemical intervention. <laughs>